Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. I'm Matt Carpenter, and I'm pleased today to host Dr. Peter Hammond. Dr. Hammond is the leader of Frontline Fellowship, a missions organization in South Africa. So, Dr. Hammond, thank you for coming on today. Matt, it's a privilege. Thank you so much for having me. So, in your work, uh, just to begin with, I mean, this this is where you live. You live in in South Africa, the the country of South Africa. But tell us how what is your background and how did you first come to Christ? Yes, I, I Africa born, uh, raised. Um, for the last 62 years, Africa's been my home. And uh, I was born in Cape Town, South Africa, but raised in Rhodesia, in Bulawayo, Rhodesia, what was um, a wonderful paradise-like part of the earth back in the 60s and 70s. And uh, Rhodesia was, however, in the very front line of the battle for faith and freedom because the Soviet Union very much targeted Rhodesia as uh, a colony uh, that needed to be destroyed. And the Rhodesians saw the British abandoning their uh, dominions all over Africa and, and around the world and uh, decided to declare independence. And when the British government happily gave independence to countries run by cannibals that had run terrorist campaigns that had murdered people, uh, uh, tortured farmers and so on, they were happy to hand over Kenya to a cannibal like Kenyatta and uh, a Zambia, Northern Rhodesia to a Marxist like Kenneth Gohinder, who meekly declared one-party dictatorship. But they weren't willing to hand over independence to southern Rhodesia, which was a self-governing, self-supporting part of the British Empire that had never cost the British taxpayers a penny, not a dime. Mm. Rhodesia had been self-supporting from its first day, having its own defense force, having its own uh, police, never requiring any foreign aid. And so Rhodesia, which had never cost the British taxpayer anything, was not allowed to get independence because it had responsible government. It had a qualified franchise. It, uh, you had to have property ownership or uh, you had to um, uh, have uh, edu- basic education. So it was either an um, O-level uh, in uh, education system, uh, which is equivalent to school certificate, or you had to own property, and then you got the vote. And so with a qualified franchise, which Britain had for most of its history, by the way, Even the United States had a qualified franchise until the 20th century. And uh, so Rhodesia thought a qualified franchise was best and had a multiracial government. It had a very responsible government, but that wasn't acceptable. They're happy to hand over to dictators, Marxists, who immediately gave people no rights, (laughs) but they weren't willing to hand over to a civilized Western country like Rhodesia. And so we were sanctioned. We were boycotted. We weren't allowed to attend the Olympics. We weren't allowed to play rugby or soccer or cricket or anything with any of the other Commonwealth countries. We were sanctioned on every level. They they blockaded us. They tried to starve us into submission. But Rhodesia just got very self-sufficient. So I was brought up among sanctions uh, with the world media demonizing us. And uh, it was quite exciting for a young boy. Uh, our teachers carried machine guns. We tra- traveled on roads endangered by landmines. When we visited the farms, uh, it was on roads that could be endangered by landmines. And you learned not to switch on the light before closing the curtains, not to open the door without first switching off the lights, never to frame yourself for any terrorists, because we were all targets. And we were brought up in, uh, it, it was exciting. I was too young to fight in the Rhodesian army, but uh, my brother served in the Rhodesian uh, army, but 
uh, I was too young for that war. I served in the South African army. So my background is secular family. Uh, there was no prayer or Bible reading or hymn singing in our family. Uh, sadly, we didn't go to church or Sunday school. And so I came to Christ at age 17 when my family moved to South Africa uh, from Rhodesia. Uh, then I encountered Christians. I was confronted with the gospel. I was converted. I was called to missions. And uh, so uh, my spiritual life started in South Africa, although it was very influential being brought up in Rhodesia. Okay. So... You were converted then at, at 17 and, and called to missions. I'm sure you didn't immediately say, well, I need to start this organization called Frontline. Uh, but, you know, so 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 what is the story? How, how did Frontline Fellowship get started? So, so take us from, you know, yes. your call to spread the gospel to this organization that's now 40 years old. Yes, and... As a Christian, I was converted uh, 45 years ago. So uh, I was just minding my own business, typical secular humanist um, in um, South Africa. And uh, I went to a cinema on a Sunday. Now, in 1977, there were no cinemas open on Sundays because all cinemas and shops were closed on Sunday in honor of the Lord's Day. South Africa had a very strong Christian ethos. Blasphemy was illegal. Uh, pornography was illegal, films were censored, all the nasty stuff was cut out. So, for example, I grew up at age 17. I didn't know what uh, swearing was. I didn't know what uh, pornography was. didn't know the existence of it or homosexuality or anything like that. Because, you know, I thought when people were angry, they'd just open their mouth and no words came out because in those films, would <laughs> be silent. You know, you could watch a film like Dirty Harry and not hear a bad word or, or see any bad scene because they'd chopped out those things. And... Uh, I was I was sheltered in that sense, and uh, we knew a lot about communism, terrorism, but uh, not about the world because we were in a Christian country. So I was brought up in Rhodesia where we also had rules like that, by the way, the same kind of censure, but we had cinemas on Sundays. So I come to South Africa, I go to a cinema on a Sunday, and people are pouring in, and it, I think they dress very well, but maybe that's what South Africans do on Sundays. We know they're quite a religious people. And then they start singing hymns and choruses, and I'm thinking, this is strange. Maybe that's what South Africans do on Sundays. I'm still expecting the film that's advertised outside. And then the preacher stood up to give the word, and I realized I was ambushed. And I was looking around, but the lights <laughs> were on. It's a thousand-seater film cinema. Uh, there was uh, – uh, uh, I was right near the front. There's no way I could easily get out. So I was trapped and ambushed. And the first time I heard the gospel mess – now, I think being brought up in Rhodesia, I must have heard the gospel somehow because we did have assemblies. We did sing hymns. There was prayer and scripture reading at the schools. There was even religious education, but nothing touched me. It was like everything went over my head. I knew nothing about the gospel, and there was no spiritual life in me before that night. And uh, you can really uh, see that regeneration precedes repentance in my experience because I was suddenly aware of my sins for the first time in my life. I mean, I must they must have read the Ten Commandments at school. Uh, must have, but nothing had ever... I thought I was a good person. But as the pastor outlined what Jesus had done for me, he asked, what have you ever done for him? And I sat there stunned, thinking, I've never done anything for God. I haven't even thanked him. I haven't thanked him for life, for health. I haven't thanked him for saving the lives of my parents through the bombings and everything else in the Second World War. I haven't thanked the Lord for uh, anything, actually, not, not food, not health, nothing. And and I should have died as, as a youngster my uh, the pastor was saying, if 
if God has preserved your life thus far, it's for a reason. And immediately I'm thinking, my mother was taking thalidomide tablets. My mother was a nurse and thalidomide was the Pfizer answer to morning sickness. And uh, it was a wonder drug because there was no morning sickness when you took, uh, took this drug, uh, thalidomide. But when the babies started to be born, they were born horribly deformed without legs, arms and so on. And so there was an absolute revulsion, hysteria and paranoia. And as a result, even though in South Africa, abortion was totally illegal at that time, they allowed it in the case of people who'd been taking thalidomide. And my mother was advised, strongly advised by the doctor, you must have an abortion. You cannot have this chance. He's got to be born horribly deformed. Well, my mother called for a chaplain, about the only religious thing she'd done, and uh, prayed and, and went ahead and, you know, I've got my arms and legs and everything. But um, so my mother told me this, and I thought, that's interesting. There's a whole lot of other stories which had shown that there had been a higher power that had protected me and my family members. But it had never entered into my consciousness much that I had to do anything about it. But now it's been challenged. If God has preserved your life thus far, it's for a reason. I thought, what reason could that be? And I was suddenly aware I'm an ungrateful wretch. I deserve an eternity in hell. I've never thanked God for anything. So the first sin God convicted me of was ingratitude. And it's overwhelming. I didn't need to have proof that God existed. I knew God existed. His presence was there. I knew I was a wretched, depraved sinner. I knew that I deserved hell. There was no question in my mind. If I died that moment, I deserved to go to hell and turn to hell and God would be just and there was nothing I could say against that. And so when they gave a challenge to come forward and surrender your life to Christ, I don't know what anyone else did. I'm totally oblivious to whatever else was going on there, but I went forward. I knelt at the front. I surrendered my life to Christ and I was called to missions. 3rd of April, 1977. It was absolutely extraordinary because I'd never met a missionary. I didn't know of any missionaries aside from David Livingston. And to be honest, at that stage, I didn't know he had been a missionary. I just knew of him as a great explorer. But um, I was not conscious he was a Christian or a missionary at that stage. So I knew nothing about missions, but I knew I was called to spend the rest of my life taking this message to others. And uh, I've never doubted that call in the last 45 years, which is... Mm. Uh, quite remarkable. So strong sense of call and and uh, and conversion that very first night. And, you know, despite being brought up in a very uh, cool, calm and collected, unemotional Anglo-Saxon home where you don't express emotion and things like that, I was dancing and skipping and rejoicing and singing my way home. And I was just uh, transformed. And from the next day, every time we were singing hymns at school or anything, I know these hymns. I've been singing these hymns all the way through my school, but I'd never consciously understood the spiritual significance. And now suddenly every line was a revelation and it was my experience. And I was no longer just singing something. I was, I was rejoicing and celebrating what I'd experienced. And so in my experience, regeneration certainly came before repentance. And uh, there's, there was no doubt God reached down. He had an appointment with me that night and that was it. My life was transformed. And for the last 45 years, I've been involved in, in um, evangelism and missions. Well, of course, my first mission field was the family, which is tough. Uh, you know, family is your hardest mission field in many ways. Right. But it took years. But ultimately, my father and mother, both of whom had said, you cannot believe in God because of what they experienced in the Second World War. And they were traumatized by the war. But um, uh, um, ultimately, both my parents came to the Lord and, and uh, died rejoicing in Christ. And then my brother and my sisters and their family. And so I was the youngest in the family, but I've seen over the years, every member of my family, extended family come to the Lord, which has been 
absolute grace and, and mercy. Praise the Lord. The first missionary to come past our church, Francis Grimm, founder of Hospital Christian Fellowship. He had planted hospital Christian fellowships in 110 countries of the world. I went forward and joined his mission. And uh, that was uh, six months before I got my military call-up. And uh, then uh, I went into the army having already been trained and schooled in prayer and evangelism. And the, the whole ethos of Hospital Christian Fellowship is more people pass through the hospitals of the world than through the churches. Evangelize and train and disciple doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and other hospital professionals, and they will be able to be an ongoing witness to the people passing the hospitals. And the communists might close a church, but they can't close a hospital. And mm. so Hospital Christian Fellowship did a lot of work behind the Iron Curtain. And so I, I had this background. Brother Andrew had come and, and taken devotions, for example, at Hospital Christian Fellowship headquarters. And so I was, I was meeting people like that. And I remember Brother Andrew saying to me when uh, Francis Grimm pointed out this young man's going to do his military service. And Brother Andrew, who had served in the Dutch army in Fortin in the East Indies and had, in fact, been crippled and were told he'd never walk again without the aid of mm. crutches. He turned to me and he said, young man, looking, piercing blue eyes, looking into my eyes, young man, when God says duck, duck, don't ask why, when, duck, or a bullet will come right where your head's been. And uh, so <laughs> that was direct words from Brother Andrew. I've met him many a time since. He's a good friend of the family and correspondent, but those were his first words to me and very good advice. Well, as I went into the South African Army, I went in actually quite negative because I wanted to be a missionary. Now, all my life I'd want to be a soldier. Everybody in my family, both sides, had been military men going back centuries, back to Napoleonic Wars and back to the Vikings. So, you know, wow. really serving in the army had always been a major, major part of my life. But now I was converted. I wasn't interested anymore. I wanted to be a missionary. And now I had to waste two years of my life in this national service. And so... I went in with actually a fairly negative mindset. And that first Sunday, God convicted me. Is this not a mission field? Look around. Listen. I mean, are there not some uh, unbelievers around here? And uh, <laughs> I've got my kitty here just wanting to uh, come in and say hello. Um, so as we, were, <laughs> as we were in this chapel service, I got such a, a conviction. I'm in a mission field already. And so I asked the chaplain if I could speak afterwards. And I stood up and it was terrifying because here's another 500 men, all shaven, bald, just about, just a little bit of stubble there, in the same brown uniforms. And um, it was intimidating, but I knew I had to make a stand. And so I asked if I could speak. And then I stood up and I said, I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart. And I want to honor him in my next two years here. If anyone else feels the same, please see me afterwards. Let's start a Bible study and prayer fellowship. That was all I said. But that was the beginning of our Mission Frontline Fellowship. We started a Bible study and prayer fellowship, which met every night through an intensive nine months training in the infantry, which was very, very intensive training. And we had a Bible study and prayer meeting. We met every night possible. I mean, sometimes, of course, we were night patrols, ambush drills across the border, but, but wherever we could, we were meeting for Bible study and prayer, and we went through the whole Bible. And a little prayer fellowship of three grew to six, grew to nine, grew to 12, grew to 24, grew to... 80-something by the end of our two years, multiple uh, companies had uh, Bible Center Prayer Fellowships, and many of those people who went through a Bible Center Prayer Fellowship ended up in Youth for the Mission, Operation Mobilization, Wycliffe Bible Translators, New Tribes Mission, a whole all over mm. the world. Absolutely phenomenal, wonderful 
uh, fruit that came out of it. And by the last week of our time in the army, God put the vision of launching a mission of ex-soldiers to go across the border to help persecuted Christians in communist countries, smuggle Bibles, show Christian films, uh, get into areas where the gospel is not legal or where conventional missionaries are not allowed or where it's considered too dangerous. And so that's how we went from um, being a secular person to being a Christian, a missionary, and started Frontline Fellowship 40 years ago. Wow. And that it's amazing how your your love for the gospel at the time, your, your, your newfound love for Christ, you wanted to just to take that and immediately go in one direction. But while you were serving your two years, uh, the Father was giving you two years of training. And I, I have no doubt that that uh, some of your military training has served you well as a missionary and served others well as missionaries in a very difficult part of the world. It did in many, many, many ways. Um, and in fact, some of our very best missionaries over the years have been people who did the military service. And uh, we, we can see, in fact, through, through church history, frequently God has called people from different uh, military backgrounds into missions. And you can see after many a war, God has called many of the soldiers back to those very same areas as missionaries to go to those islands and countries mm. where they first served. And because our eyes were opened, obviously before that I was very focused on what I knew, what I saw. But but when we went up to the border and we saw uh, what was going, on, first time I went into Angola, uh, meeting people and asking them, "Where's your local church?" And the point I burnt out area. So that was the church. The communists burnt it down. Where's your pastor? The Cubans shot him. What can we do to help you? Biblia, Biblia. They wanted Bibles. And you see hungry, starving, wounded, sick, crippled people asking for Bibles and rejoicing and dancing, dancing on their crutches sometimes to receive a Bible saying, this is the greatest gift anyone could ever ask for, the word of God in my own language. I've been praying day and night for my own copy of the word of God. This is the greatest gift anyone could ever ask for. And how could we not keep going back? Uh, we could see the need. We could see the, the love for the Lord. We could see how much people had suffered. And so while our mission probably started initially with the idea of doing a few missions, helping the people of there, delivering some Bibles, it obviously had to become lifelong because even when the persecution ended in Mozambique and Angola and prayers were answered and those countries became open to gospel, other wars broke out. And then next thing we were in Sudan and Rwanda and, and Egypt and so and the Congo and Nigeria. So uh, this this mission has expanded to the point that over the last 40 years I have traveled in 42 countries and I've served ministered in 38 countries which has included eight wars three revolutions and uh, multiple times in prison uh, been rocketed strafed bombed under artillery bombardment um, captured uh, thrown in jail in prison interrogated and all of that so it's, it's been quite an adventure uh, the last 40 years but where God guides he provides an of God will never lead you with the grace of God cannot keep you. Wow. That that your, your, your list of things reminded me a little bit of, of Paul's in 2 Corinthians where he talks about all the things that he faced, not as bragging just to say, this is what happens when you follow Christ and he sustained us. So 
Praise be to him. Mm. So that's, that is great. Indeed. I mean, I, I should say, I didn't know much about what I was doing initially. My first mission to Mozambique, I didn't speak a word of Portuguese. I had no contacts in the country. I hadn't studied that much about it. I'd read an Operation World, the intercessory prayer uh, handbook for missions. I'd read there wasn't one missionary allowed in Mozambique. There were only two medical doctors in the country at the time. Uh, there were no Bibles allowed. Uh, the churches were closed. Nobody under 18 was allowed in church. Uh, nobody under 18 was allowed to be baptized. 8,000 churches had been closed, uh, destroyed, burned down, or confiscated, uh, which was 4,700 uh, Catholic churches and 3,300 Protestant churches. So uh, it was a killing fields. Uh, it was just one of the worst places you could imagine to go to as a mission. Um, a book I wrote in Mozambique uh, from my first experience there was in the killing fields of Mozambique. I mean, that's how bad it was. And uh, when I went there, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't even know how to do it. But God guided us step by step. I mean, just to give you a feel of, of that, as, as I went into Mozambique on my motorbike with the Jesus Form 4, four reels of the Jesus Form 16 mil projectors, um, and I'm uh, t taking a thousand New Testaments and um, and a couple of thousand Gospels in, um, in side panels and uh, uh, saddlebags and, and packs on top of my motorbike. Uh, so uh, really um, pretty wild uh, if you think about going into a war zone that our country was at war with and I'm fresh out the army and uh, I'm going into a country where I don't even speak the language. Well, it was extraordinary. God provided everything from the visas onwards. It's just absolutely amazing because there was no consulate for Mozambique in South Africa. I had to go into neighboring Swaziland, which had diplomatic relations with Zambia, uh, with, with Mozambique to get there. But I get into the town, pitch dark, total power failure. Uh, they didn't just have power failures. They occasionally had electricity. Power failure was normal. Most of the time they had power failure. And in this pitch dark city, and I'm standing on a street corner just greeting strangers that walk past. Hello, hello, hello. And after a long time, somebody said hello back. And I turned and I said, do you speak English? Yes. Are you a Christian? The person said, hallelujah. And I said, praise the Lord. And he said, hallelujah. And I said, praise the Lord. And he said, do you have a place to stay tonight? You must come and stay in my house. Well, that was a major answer to prayer. And he said, do you have a translator? I speak Ronga, Tsonga, Tswa, Portuguese, fluently. You've got the job. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if he slept that night. But uh, by the next morning, he had gathered together a few hundred people for an underground service, an illegal secret service. I uh, don't know how you could have several hundred people at a secret service, but there we go. That's amazing. Uh, and, no and social that media back then. The first church service I went to lasted 13 hours. 13 hours. They didn't stop for lunch or tea. Well, not that there was food anyway. But they had three offerings, interestingly. And uh, the people would dance and come bring something to the front and then I presume the treasurer would count and he'd say that's not enough and it'd start again. And um, uh, and some people <laughs> come bring money and take change. And Very interesting, like not anything I'd expected. Well, we had nothing to give. I'd put all my money into from the army into motorbike and the Bibles and the Jesus form. And you know, I was penniless. I don't think I had 10 rand uh, amongst us, uh, which would have been less than $10 at that stage. And uh, uh, left in the world. <laughs> I had no money to put an offering. Didn't even have enough petrol to get out of the city again. So um, it's just, this is a faith mission. But I brought out some Bibles and New Testaments that we bought. And suddenly there was this hush. And people walked up to it like, you know, a spacecraft had arrived with such awe and surprise and 
picked it up and people fell on their knees and wept and cried and kissed the barbers and people kissed us both cheeks, Portuguese style. And there was all this excitement over, over bringing in the Bibles. And, and, and that's when I first heard, this is the greatest gift anyone could ever ask for. And I then told them, I brought the Jesus for And the people were so excited and they said, does anyone know where I can borrow a projector from? And you could just see the response and the people looking like, is he insane? Uh, what do you mean? <laughs> How are you going to get a projector in Mozambique? There's not even electricity. You didn't bring a. You didn't bring a. Didn't even bring a generator. How you expect your film? So, not that anyone said that, but I realised later what the implications were. Well, at the end of that service, somebody came up to me and said, "Tomorrow, come to the corner of Vladimir Lenin and Mao Tung Streets. I work at the British Embassy, and I, they've got a 16 mil projector. Maybe they'll be willing to lend you one." Well, that's an interesting development. So I went to the corner of Mao Tung and Vladimir Lenin streets. You can get the idea of the kind of community we were in. And right. uh, they took me to the uh, consul and the British consul was awfully pleasant. Um, I, I, Even though I never have lived in Britain, my father fought all six years of the Second World War in the Eighth Army. So I have a British passport just courtesy of my dad's wartime service for Britain. So I had a British passport, which meant I was part of the club, so to speak. And uh, the man gladly lent me the 16 mil projector, but he said, as I took it, he said, you're most welcome to take the projector, but you're going to have to seriously pray, he says, because we don't have electricity but one day a week. And tonight's not the night we're expecting any electricity either, by the way. So, well, that was a good challenge. <laughs> so we go to this, I mean, a picture this, a bombed out church, no roof, no pews, no windows, the glass is gone, bullet holes in the walls. This is a gutted, empty church. I think it used to be a Presbyterian church. But anyway, we're in this empty church. And um, there's not even plugs in the walls, although there are wires dangling in these places. So, well, I start to un uh, screwdriver, undo the plugs on my projector, and I start wrapping wires around those, plug those wires. And the people are standing around thinking, this is not really going to work because there's no electricity <laughs> and you know as as a fairly young christian thing let's pray for electricity and the people did and you know god is so gracious and merciful he honored our simplistic lack of preparations on he sent electricity i mean we got oh, wow. electricity the power came on and people were so excited and the the projector started to roll and the people saw and there was such excitement they saw the jesus film and we Got about an hour and a half of electricity, and then the power went out. About the time of the crucifixion scene, which that's not bad. This is pretty good. So I stood up right. with the translator and torch and, and preached way uh, of implication of the cross. And while I'm preaching, the lights come on again. And people told me that that never happens. When the power's out, it's out for the next week, you know. And we, we got just enough time to go through to the resurrection ascension, the Jesus film, Portuguese and so on. Power went out again, preached more. Now, in the dark, I'm standing just with a torch, calling people to make their commitments to Christ. I start to see soldiers coming to the front in camouflage carrying AK-47s, and my heart, like, stops. Because yes. it's like, I remember being told, preach as a dying man to dying man, preach each time as though it's the last time you could preach, or the last time people may hear you. And I think I'd done that. But ah, is this my first and last mission? Right. <laughs> and as the soldiers came forward, they knelt on the floor and put their assault rifles on the ground in the dust. And they knelt down. Some bowed their heads to the to the ground. 
and I led them in prayer and, and counseled these people to salvation through the translators. I had the chance to baptize Filimo soldiers, communist soldiers, and I was just barely a few months out of uniform myself, and these people had been the enemies my brother had fought when he was in Rhodesian army. So you can imagine that this is just, this is, I'm talking about the the first year of our mission, going into Mozambique. <laughs> uh, uh, this this was just extraordinary. And so God was super gracious. He guided us when, when I didn't know how to change a spark plug, when I had never fixed a tire yet. I, I had to learn, but <laughs> those opportunities came. But I was so inexperienced at what we were doing. But the army gave us discipline, gave us courage. We saw God protects. We saw God provides, God guides. We'd learned discipline. We'd learned to, that there's nothing magical about these borders. You can cross borders. Um, it's it's uh, uh, this this uh, change of color on the map doesn't exist in reality. Um, and there are ways to cross borders and uh, no borders uncrossable, actually. And also, I remember one of the things that we were saying in the army as we were studying the Great Commission is, the Great Commission says you've got to go into all the world. It doesn't say you have to come back. And to fulfill the Great Commission requires that we go. And we should never take anything into the field we're not willing to lose. And that includes your own life. And I've had to say that to a number of our people as we're going into war-torn areas like the Nuba Mountains of Sudan, be sure you don't take anything in the field you're not willing to lose. And that includes your own life. If you're not willing to die on this mission, don't go. And, uh, and that's a serious warning that we've had to give because these are dangerous places. And um, uh, we lost a missionary on, on one of our cross-border missions into Angola, um, Anthony Duncan, back in 1994. And uh, we've been very fortunate. Uh, 20 of our people have ended up in prison. I've been in that position three times as well uh, over the years. But, um, but God's been gracious and he's opened prison doors and let the captives free in response to persistent prayer and pressure uh, brought to bear on him. But uh, that's just some of how our mission got started. We really didn't know how God would answer these prayers. We didn't know how we'd be able to fulfill this. We didn't know. Initially, we didn't know much about what we even had to do or what the situation was, but God guided us. And then later on, we were able to make better plans, which is just as well, because the Lord isn't as merciful on later trips as he is in the first ones, because it seems he lets you, you know, the first time I had a vehicle breakdown, I didn't know how to fix it, but someone came along who did. But the second time there was no one around, I had to now have the spare spark plug and spare fan belt or whatever it was needed and know how to change it myself. And so God expected me to learn, but he was very merciful and gracious initially to let us learn what we were doing um, back when, I must say, what we knew was dangerously little. And um, so over the years, I've put more and more effort into training courses and training other missionaries because so many people go into missions unprepared. And so uh, one of our priorities every year is running an intensive three-week boot camp for missionaries, uh, the Great Commission course where we train people, which includes morning PT and practicals and workshops and running up and over the mountains and uh, uh, Bible smuggling simulation drills in the dark, smuggling across rivers and all the rest of it. So uh, we, we're trying to prepare others and try and teach the things that I wish someone had told me when I got started. Hmm. That's I've never heard of that before, but that is very needed for missionaries because I know, of course, in the States here, people think of missionaries and, and we think of, you know, the classic William Carey or, you know, the few who have heard about David Livingston 
and we think, you know, great guys, but we, you know, at the same time, they just go over and they set up shop and they preach. And then eventually some people come and, and, and we don't think about all of the, the, the military type training, except spiritual military, but still physical training that's needed to be a part of the army of the Lord in other places. So I'm very glad to hear that there's that type of thing that goes on. Yes, I should say, for example, it's amazing how God did prepare some of his missionaries for the work. For example, Dr. David Livingston, he came from a very, very, very poor family. And uh, uh, he was from age 10, full-time working uh, 14 hours a day, six days a week, every day of the year, uh, with the exception of Sundays. There was no other holidays. And he had to walk an average of 32 miles a day in the factory because he was a PC. He had to be constantly moving, climbing, clambering up and over the machinery and under it and stooping and crawling around to, to keep piecing the thread. He has a piecer. And uh, this in, in humid conditions considered essential for the production of thread in, in hot temperatures equivalent to what it would be in the tropics in Africa. And he points out later that, that having had 12 years of that training, was tremendous physical preparation for the work he had to do in, in the mission field. And later when he was studying and he was uh, at, at studying theological college and also medical uh, school, uh, he had to walk eight miles uh, from where he lived to on Monday mornings uh, to um, where he was studying in Glasgow and then eight miles back on Friday nights. And uh, he is uh, actually, sorry, I'm, I'm so wrong, <laughs> Saturday nights. It was six days college work. We didn't have a, a five-day work week. It was still six days. It was only Sundays. And he would refuse the offers of people traveling on horse carts for a ride. He said he must keep his muscles strengthened, uh, walking often through the snow. Remember, this is Scotland, of course. And in Northern Hemisphere, it can be very cold. And so he was walking uh, still and saying no to lifts and carts, uh, getting getting a ride. Uh, simply because he wanted to stay physically strong. Now, I mean, that, that's a, a real physical training that, that when he went to the field, he, had to, he walked across Africa. He, and if you've right. ever seen a picture of, of David Livingston riding in a bush uh, on a horse, that's absolute fiction, imagination of some uh, journalist, because you couldn't ride in most of these places in Africa because um, the tsetse fly killed him in the areas that he went to. And that's why the tsetse mm. flies on the flyleaf of his book, Missionary Travels in Southern Africa, because uh, the tetsu fly made impossible to travel by horse in these areas. Uh, he walked. Hmm. He walked. And he walked from one side of the continent to the other. He walked from coast to coast. He walked from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean. Uh, he walked for 26 years across Africa. So he was prepared in a unique way for what yes. he did um, in Africa as well. So God's got his different ways of preparing his people. He and does. for me, my military training was a very key part of what I've got to do because uh, – I've spent 40 years going behind enemy lines, smuggling Bibles into communist and Muslim countries and working in war zones, uh, training chaplains and evangelizing in restricted access areas. And that needed this kind of training and discipline because um, I didn't get that at school or at home. Um, and right. uh, praise God that he, he sovereignly prepares us, often through things that we resisted and didn't want to do at the time. Mm. 
you talk about now you have a number of books and I, I will uh, put in, in our, our notes for this your your website but also so your book um, Christians who change the something like Christians who change the world oh yes uh, yes sir so, victorious Christians who change the yes. world that's one of my um, history books I started doing this because of homeschooling and I was quite frustrated at the history. Even on very fine Christian curriculums, I found that the history was inadequate. And to be honest, I think a lot of Christian school textbooks are secular textbooks with the same with the same selection of characters and events and personalities that the world's te textbooks have, but they add some scripture verses to it. And right. that's not good enough. Um, and I wanted a thoroughly Christian uh, uh, history book for my children. So I started, in fact, it started with The Greatest Century of Missions because I wanted, mm -hmm. uh, so in fact, my Greatest Century theories was Greatest Century of Missions, 19th century, 1800s. So I had 19 biographies of 19 most influential missionaries of the 19th century and um, lots of pictures, lots of stories. And of course, everyone from Mary Slessor to uh, David Livingston and Adnan Judson, many of those folks. And then I did The Greatest Century of, of, of Reformation. 16th century, 16 biographies of the 16 main missionaries of... So I believe you can learn by character studies the best. And then um, there were a whole lot of other centuries that I went, well, so starting with everyone from Perpetua, 32 chapters, 32 biographies. Basically, it's it's a sweep through all of church history by looking at the character studies in these areas. And I just find, uh, well, children in particular, but all of us, we learn through stories, stories and pictures. Yes. And um, uh, so I think this is also examples of excellence. And so we used that book in our home for our uh, our evening our evening reading for for a while a couple of years ago. After mm -hmm. supper every night, we would read about those different Christians that you had written. Uh, you know, so we would read from your book, and and our kids really enjoyed it. And Amanda and I. Uh, my wife really enjoyed it as well. It was very helpful, and because there's a, there are a lot of characters, as you just said, that we don't hear about, because most of us, uh, as adults, now we're trained in government schools, and government has their particular heroes that they want us to recognize, and then there are other heroes that they would, don't want us to talk about. So, or even know, know about, for example, <laughs> right? Well, David Livingston. In, in the, the, the last world history textbook I used in a public school, it said he was a missionary, but he was famous for being a doctor in Africa. So it does say, it does use the word missionary. That's the, it, it uses the word one time over about three sentences, but, every, but, but it's no, nothing about the work that he did or the purpose for which he went to Africa. Yes. So, and you take, you take how David Livingston has got towns and cities in Africa named after him to this day. Now, most African cities have renamed anything named after European, but not Livingston, not Livingstonia. Um, and uh, mm. he is honored. And they've taken down many monuments, statues around Africa that remember some colonial figure like Cecil John Rhodes, but not David Livingston. Livingston, he has so many monuments just in the town of Livingston. I counted eight statues and monuments to David Livingston, not counting uh, the 
at David Livingston High School and the David Livingston uh, Teacher Training College and a whole lot of other places like that. And uh, they, nobody's renamed Victoria Falls, which he named and mapped and, and uh, mm. uh, he's the one who, who measured and so on and made known to the world. So uh, David Livingston was voted in a – we did a reader survey some years ago with our publication went all over Africa. And do you know, David Livingston was voted the, the uh, greatest African of all time by people throughout Africa. And he wow. was far and away, far and away. I mean, way above the Nelson Mandela's and the um, Robert Mugabe's and Shaka Zulu and Cleopatra even. Uh, they put David Livingston as the greatest African of all time. Uh, now, uh, admittedly, this is Christian readership and Christian publications, but still... Um, in Africa, there are still countries putting uh, David Livingston on their um, postage stamps. Zambia, Malawi, uh, Djibouti. I mean, there's all sorts of places where he's still honored and remembered. I don't think Britain has ever put David Livingston on their postage stamps. But, no. uh, but uh, Africa has. And by the way, William Carey's probably never been a postage stamp in England, but he has been in India. Wow. So... I know you, you referenced earlier the, you know, how, how textbooks often and the general opinion towards colonialism is negative, but it seems that colonialism and missionaries have a long history of going together that, that, you know, that, that the Lord used the one for the other. But I, I, I would love to hear just from your perspective Someone who's lived in Africa, I'm quite confident I know what it is, but but I, I would love to hear just in general and for listeners, was British colonialism, and just if you want to expand that, you know, you could expand it to European colonialism, although you, you may get into a little bit more of debate from folks, but was British colonialism in general good for Africa? Generally, yes. Now, of course, uh, the idea that colonialism and the missionaries went together is is really more of propaganda from the Marxist side, Vladimir Lenin and so on, who first popularized that myth. That's not true. The missionaries were the conscience who often clashed with the colonials. In fact, the colonial figures hated the missionaries generally because they were a pain in the neck. Uh, William hmm. Carey was illegal for the first 20 years of his missionary work in India, more than 20 years, that by, not just by Indian rule, not just by the um, uh, British East India Company, but the British Parliament made it illegal for any missionary to work in India without the permission of the, uh, the British East India Company, which said they would never give it uh, because they said it interfered with their business. And they didn't want to upset the Hindus and the Muslims who were their primary clientele. So uh, British East India Company seriously persecuted and harassed and uh, prevented and forbade the missionaries to such extent that William Carey could only operate uh, in India, under the protection of the Danish crown in the Danish colony of Sarampal. Uh, he was not allowed in, in the British areas to be doing missionary work, and he had to do it uh, with circumspection and illegally, extrajudicially, if you want to put it that way. Many of the missionaries in Africa were very, very, very unpopular with the um, colonial powers because they had consciences and they would remind. And I just like today, uh, if you speak to the social issues, you will find the government trying to shut you down as fake news or uh, uh, deplatform you or cause you grief because uh, missionaries and Christians and truth speakers are always a pain in the neck. So I don't think uh, suggesting they work together is, is correct at all. 
And in many cases, the missionaries came first. Uh, for example, David Livingston was definitely a way ahead. I mean, he was in areas where there's no colonialism at all. And uh, uh, he was, of course, exposing the slave trade and healing bodies and uh, preaching the gospel, the first preacher of the gospel in many, many, many parts of Africa. Um, but overall, if you look at colonialism in Africa, colonialism overwhelmingly in Africa was positive in that it brought roads, railways, schools, bridges, the rule of law. It ended genocides. It ended intertribal genocides, cannibalism, slave trade. Uh, there was a huge amount of good things that, that colonialism did. It, it increased life expectancy, double, treble, and in some cases quadrupled the life expectancy of people. Um, the, in fact, for example, in Zimbabwe, uh, what today is Zimbabwe, uh, the uh, population was static for centuries, static, because the death toll roughly equaled the birth rate and so on. So uh, people, it, there was about 100,000 people in the country going back for, for uh, centuries because uh, there was always lack of food and there was uh, regular famines and there was lots of intertribal warfare. And, of course, people dying of um, preventable diseases such as malaria and um, um, uh, dysentery and so on. So waterborne parasitic disease were common, uh, tick bite fever and all this. So um, again, when you look at it, the, the colonials came and suddenly the population of uh, Zimbabwe jumped from 100,000 to 10 million in the space of a century. <laughs> I mean, how's that for population growth? And uh, in every case, you can see that the colonials improved the life. But having said that, You've got to differentiate between Catholic colonial powers and Protestant colonial powers. The Catholic colonial okay. powers, Belgium, Portugal, France, Spain, they didn't do so well. Now, they still were improvements on what was there before, great improvement, but literacy rate was down to the 20, 30%. Whereas the literacy rate in Protestant countries, where the Protestant colonial powers went, we're talking about now the Dutch, the Germans, the British, well, that was whew, up to the 90%. So uh, obviously literacy rates was always sky high in Protestant areas and very low in the Catholic areas. If you've got a country in Africa today that has a high living standard, it's got a Protestant missionary heritage <coughs> or colonial heritage. It used to be under Germany, uh, Netherlands or, or Britain. Uh, if you've got um, a multi-party democracy in Africa of any sort with any resemblance of free press, almost certainly uh, they... Uh, came out of the British, Dutch, or German uh, ancestry, Protestant, and therefore they've got that tradition. Most of the dictatorships, most of the coup d'etats, most of the revolutions, most of the one-party states and civil wars have taken place in countries that used to be under Catholic domain. We're talking about the French, the Belgians, the Portuguese in particular. And so in my experience, I could see <laughs> just, you go into Mozambique, you could tell the Portuguese used to be there, the standards of the roads, the standards of the water. The sta For example, if you can be in a country in Africa and drink the water out the tap without getting sick, you can bet your bottom dollar. That was a Protestant colonial power. Um, but the rest of Africa, you if you drink the water out of the, out of, that comes out of the plumbing system of, provided by the municipality, you will get sick. You might die. Um, well, that's normal, and that's uh, typical of the uh, countries that used to be under Catholic. So you could make quite a big contrast between those countries that were ruled by Portugal, France, and Spain, and, and the Belgians, and those who were ruled by the Dutch, the Germans, and the British. And the difference is Protestant, Catholic. So um, I think some of the most benighted countries in Africa, some of the most backward countries imaginable, never had any colonial power. So, for example, you go to Abyssinia, Ethiopia, um, uh, Liberia um, and uh, Sierra Leone, where they chop off people's hands for blood diamonds and things like this. Um, 
those never were under colonial rule. And so to suggest that colonialism was a negative is to fly in the face of the statistics. Uh, you could say uh, that the countries that were colonized did much better than the countries that weren't, and the countries that were colonized by Protestant powers did vastly better than the ones that were colonized by Catholic powers. And we're not even bringing the Muslims now. The countries that were colonized by the Arabs in North Africa, phew, very harsh, very, very, very harsh, especially for the poor black people in those countries. Hmm. That's not something you hear very much uh, about now. Uh, so in your work, though, there is a, a line of thinking that says, well, if we're spreading the gospel, all we all we should do is only talk about Jesus, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and we're not going to touch social issues. But I know from reading your work, uh, you you've never been hesitant to approach what is right socially as well as biblically and, and the there's not a there should not be a distinction frankly between the two so so talk about how you have approached social issues as, as a leader in a missions organization yes well to me the lordship of christ in all areas of life is in the great commission we are not commanded to go into all the world and witness we're not commanded to to go and share a testimony or just to evangelize, we command to make disciples. The Great Commission is to go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Baptizing them in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, lo, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. The Great Commission starts with all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. So how can we not apply the Lordship of Christ to all areas of life? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a key part of the Lord's Prayer. So to me, the Great Commission is to teach, not just teach faith and a few of our favorite things, but uh, to teach obedience to all things that the Lord has commanded. The whole Bible is our, our book. We can't just be New Testament Christians. In fact, the New Testament Christians weren't just New Testament Christians. When they said all <laughs> scripture is inspired of God and is useful teaching, it's referring to Old Testament. New Testament wasn't written yet because, uh, in fact, um, uh, uh, Timothy is one of the... Um, uh, earliest, uh, one of the later books written uh, in, in some ways. But still, uh, we didn't have the whole New Testament when we were being told that all Scripture is inspired of God. So when I look at this, I see David Livingston didn't hesitate to speak out on the social political issues. He spoke out against polygamy, he spoke out against slavery, he spoke out and campaigned against slavery, intertribal genocides and all sorts of things. And he actively involved, he got involved. He set captives free. He, in fact, broke and and um, uh, burned many of the yokes, many of the uh, yokes that we used to uh, chain up the uh, Chichewa people on the lakes of Lake Malawi, on the shores of Lake Malawi, and take them off uh, as slaves uh, to Dar es Salaam. Uh, he campaigned and wrote, and you can see this emphasis in his writings, to, to actually uh, invest in stopping this open sore of the world, this trade in human flesh and in slavery. And in fact, you'll even see that when you go to his grave, which is in Westminster Abbey, where I've been in, in London, and may God's richest blessings come upon anyone, American, British, or Turk, who will heal the world of this open sore, uh, the slave trade. And uh, so David Livingston also was concerned to bring trade to Africa because he saw parents 
selling their child for a packet of needles, selling a child to an Arab slave trader for a packet of needles. And he said, until we give the people in Africa something else to trade except the vile trade in human flesh, this sla the slave trade will not be driven out of the market. So he said, we've got to bring real commerce, lawful commerce into Africa to enable people to get the goods they want without selling their neighbors or their children in some cases. William Carey, of course, from the very earliest days was, was campaigning against widow burning where a, a woman's usefulness ends when her husband dies and she must be burned on the funeral pyre of her husband. So the children become not just having lost their dad, but losing their mom, becoming orphans. And you know this, this evil, um, he campaigned against the burning of uh, leper patients because they believed a fiery end to their life would ensure a better transmitigation into a better reincarnation in the future. He campaigned on so many levels, uh, temple prostitution, you name it, all the evils that were going done in Hinduism. Uh, the sacrificing of children infanticide to the Holy Mother Ganges, where they literally threw their child to the crocodiles and to the, uh, in, the in the rivers and campaigned uh, and brought pressure to bear on the British government to, to stop these things, which the British government was loath to do because they didn't want to interfere with the religious practice of India and, and upset their colonial uh, rule. So uh, again and again, the missionaries were, were dealing with social and political issues. And how can you not? Now, when I got started in my work, you could think that I was just interested in taking Bibles and evangelizing and seeing the churches grow. But Bibles were illegal. And how can I take Bibles into the country when people are saying to me, what about Romans 13? How can you disobey the government? The government have said no Bibles allowed to go. And there you go, breaking the law. Well, now I've got to go back to the word of God and look at it carefully. What does Romans 13 say? Does it say you must obey everything the government demands? No, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The emphasis in that is, show me a coin. Whose image is it? Caesar's. Well, give to Caesar the coin that has his image and give to God everything else. And today, what do you hear? It's like, well, render unto Caesar everything Caesar demands and including your children right. made in the image of God. Give Caesar everything he wants and give God a coin. You know, God gets the coin, Caesar gets everything else. It's totally inverted. Jesus was telling them, give Caesar the coin and give God everything else. And mm. the, the whole emphasis has been turned inverted horribly. Uh, but not only that, Romans 13 is telling us that government is meant to be a deacon of God, a servant of God. And the word is deacon. Not, not a terror to, to those who do good, but a terror to those who do evil. To reward and to protect those who do good and to punish those who do evil in accordance with God's law because they're God's servant and answerable to God. And so uh, our Lord Jesus said that the kings of earth lorded over one another, call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. So uh, this is what led to Christians being called civil servants. And the concept of a prime minister, a first servant of a country, is a uniquely Christian concept. And cabinet ministers, servants, um, using the word deacon, again, it's a Christian concept. So when I looked at this, I thought, wait a minute, no government has the right to countermand the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No government has the right to say you may not fulfill the Great Commission. No government has the right to, no government's above the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, and I remember when one of our missionaries, Anthony Duncan, died after smuggling a ton of Bibles and medicines into Angola, I had some Job's comforter from England say to me, this is God's judgment on Frontline Fellowship because you're breaking the law, not just the law of Angola, but you're breaking United Nations international law because the United Nations had forbidden Bibles and 
medicines to go into, you need to control the free Angola. And I said, you do not understand the scriptures or church history. All missions was illegal initially because religious freedom is a fruit of Christianity. In fact, it's a fruit of the Protestant Reformation. Religious freedom didn't exist anywhere before the gospel took root. And so the very concept that you can only do missions where it's allowed, well, then there would be virtually no missions that have been done to this date because it was always illegal. Uh, And so when I started to understand church history better and I started to understand what the Bible is teaching better and I understood the Lordship of Christ and the sovereignty of God better and that all authority is delegated by God, all authority is answerable to God, then I understood, as Jesus said to, to Pontius Pilate, you would have no authority of me unless it had been delegated to you from above. And so all authority is delegated authority. And so God is the ultimate authority. And it is foolishness and it's rebellion to God and it's blasphemous, frankly, for us to suggest that we should obey some cursed United Nations or any other gangsters with flags out there. They don't have the right to countermand God's orders. And so uh, our mission has, from the very beginning, had to not only break laws in order to smuggle barbers into communist and Muslim countries, but we've had to report back on atrocities done by those governments to their citizens, our brothers and sisters in Christ, Christians, burning churches, crucifying pastors, burning Bibles, killing Christians, massacring Christians, enslaving people. These sort of atrocities need to be reported on. And then friends of ours, we discover are locked up in prisons. And so I've had to campaign to bring pressure to bear upon the wicked so that they will release prisoners. And um, our Lord Jesus in Luke 18 gives the uh, a, a story about this woman, this, uh, this persistent widow, who although she... Uh, uh, had no power with man, yet through her persistent prayers and her pressure against this wicked magistrate, this magistrate did not care about God and he did not fear God or care about man, yet because of the persistent prayers of this widow, he saw that justice was done, not because he is good, but because she was persistent. So persistent prayer and pressure provide protection for the persecuted. And I've seen time and again God opening yeah. prison doors, setting captives free, including myself. I mean, I've been locked up um, in communist countries, Muslim countries, I've, I've been in danger. I've been threatened that I'm going to be killed, put against the wall, firing squad, you will die and all that. And uh, But through persistent prayer and pressure, I've been set free and I'm alive today. And we've done this and we've seen many, many, many Christians locked up who've been set free in response to persistent prayer and pressure. So as the Lord says in Luke 18, we should always pray and not give up, which suggests that yes. if we're not praying, we've given up. So you've told some wonderful stories here, and I I, I want to also commend to people. I mean, so you have a lot of great PowerPoints and audio on your website. So it was one of your PowerPoints that probably five years ago is how I I just introduced the Battle of Lepanto to my kids one Mm -hmm. evening. And we just we went through your PowerPoint about Lepanto, uh, and not my, my public school students at, at this particular time, but it was my just my kids at home. They were very young, but I wanted them to hear about this wonderful battle. So, so I would commend that to, to people, and, and again, many books, Victorious Christians Who Changed the World, and many others. But your, your most recent book that I know of is called Frontline, Behind Enemy Lines, where you talk about the 40 years of your ministry and yeah that's this is our latest book yes 
and it, it's it looks really good and and i know you've told many stories about that uh you, you've told stories here that you but there's a lot more stories in there so just a, a couple more questions one from the book and, and then one in conclusion but i, I remember you, you talking about what you had an interaction with nelson mandela that was uh that, that stuck in my in, in my in my memory can, can you tell us about that yes well that that happened quite a while ago but um yes so i marched Thirty thousand people to Parliament to protest Nelson Mandela's attempts to legalize abortion, pornography, legalize prostitution, a whole lot of vile things, everything from gambling to Sabbath desecration. I mean, he's paganizing our country, secular humanism, school textbooks, evolutionism, you name it. So we marched against the secular state and all these things that delivered memorandum. And uh, that was on the Tuesday. On the Thursday, I was summoned to meet the president at his presidential mansion, Crudescu Estate in, in, in Cape Town. And uh, as I came in, Nelson Mandela, President Nelson Mandela, who's a real icon worldwide, and uh, the United Nations has declared um, his birthday to be uh, national, uh, International Nelson Mandela Day. And they've basically been trying to build new religion around him in this country. Uh, his face on all our bills of all denominations and things like this. Anyway, so I go in to meet President Nelson Mandela, and his first words to me was, so, Mr. Hammond, what were you doing in the years of struggle? So I said, I was fighting people like you, sir. And he laughed and he slapped his knee and he got up and he reached over and he shook my hand again. He said, it's so good to meet an honest white man. He said, all the whites I've met, they all opposed apartheid and uh, they always support me. It made me wonder how the National Party stayed in power for over 40 years when nobody supported him. I said, well, make no mistake, Mr. President, we were not fighting against... We were not fighting for apartheid. We were fighting against communism and against terrorism. So he said, apartheid's the greatest evil in the history of the world. I said, well, I can't agree with that, Mr. President. But that prize goes to your friends and supporters, the communists, who've killed over 160 million people just in the 20th century. That's their own governments um, have wiped out. Not foreigners killed them, but their own governments have killed their own people. Over 160 million people in the 20th century, killed by secular states, communists, and and uh, secular humanist states, in many cases, Marxist states, Maoist states. And uh, he's still staring at me, so I started to document it. Over the 66 million killed under Stalin and Lenin and co. in, in Soviet Union, uh, the over 68 million killed under Mao Zedong in, the, in China. He's still silent, so I carried on uh, with Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge and killed 40% of the population in Cambodia. And... Uh, all the way through to Mozambique, Angola. Mengistu, who I knew was his friend, uh, the dictator of, of Ethiopia, who had uh, massacred millions of people in Ethiopia under the Red Terror. And uh, um, I ended up with with uh, Fidel Castro of Cuba, who he had just welcomed to our parliament, given him the greatest award anyone could ever give anyone from um, from South Africa, which was uh, a high medal. And then he has given the privilege of speaking to our joint sittings of both upper and lower house in our parliament in Cape Town. Uh, but I didn't mention that then. I was just um, exposing this, this character. So as I finished, Nelson Mandela leaned back in his couch and he stared off into cyberspace there and he said, when I was a prisoner of the Boers on Robben Island, they would not allow me to wear sunglasses. I've got very sensitive eyes and that's very painful. Well, Interesting, you go to the Nelson Mandela Museum leading to, to 
uh, Robin Island, where they've got a shrine to him. There's a picture of him standing there, a big floor-to-ceiling picture of him um, leaning on his spade by his vegetable garden wearing sunglasses. So, um, And he also said how they wouldn't let him wear long trousers. He only had to wear shorts. He's there wearing long trousers, wearing sunglasses. Maybe it was just the first few weeks, I don't know, months. But anyway, there's a picture that seems to contradict what he said, but I didn't get into that. That's not the point. Um, and so I said, Mr. President, my eyes are also very sensitive and I can understand how very painful and inconvenient that must have been. But I'm sure you will agree that hardly compares with the atrocities documented by Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago. Well, he then questioned the uh, Christianity of those Dutch Reformed ministers, Dominies, who had justified apartheid 40 years ago. I said, Mr. President, it will not be 40 years from now. People question your humanity for legalizing abortion. You have replaced apartheid with abortion. You have replaced discrimination on the base of race with discrimination on the base of age. And this doesn't just put the babies into a different group area and put them on a separate voters' roll or separate them in which facilities or beaches and swimming pools they can use. This takes away the right to life before they've taken one breath outside the womb. I said, future generations will judge you harshly unless you enact legislation that protects the most innocent, helpless citizens of all, pre-born babies from the violence and justice of abortion. Well, you know, we had this sort of ding-dong backwards and forwards for an hour. Um, and I put some of that in the book. Well, at the end, Nelson Mandela stood up and he said, you may now take your photographs. Now, I didn't mean to be rude, and I honestly had never crossed my mind to want to get a picture with him, and I hadn't even thought of bringing a camera. Um, so I said, no, thank you, Mr. President, but we would very much like to pray with you. And he looked like we'd slapped him in the face with a wet fish or something. It looked absolutely shocked. Maybe we were the first people who didn't want their picture taken with them. I don't know. I mean, what would I do with a picture of me and Nelson Mandela? Hmm. But uh, when I said we'd like to pray with you, he said, no, 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 that, that's very private. I'd rather not. And I pretend I hadn't heard, and I put a hand on the president's shoulder and start praying, Lord Jesus, may you not give Nelson Mandela a moment's peace until he does what he knows is right, enacts legislation to protect pre-born babies, the most helpless, innocent citizens of all from the violence and injustice, the evil of abortion. And Lord God, uh, may you ensure that Nelson Mandela will bow the knee to you as King Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and, and so on. So, and then I gave him a book written by Dr. James Kendi um, and a Christian history book from Christian Liberty Press. And uh, Proverbs says you should always take a gift to a famous person. <laughs> so um, he said, my door is always open to you, Mr. Hammond. Be assured I'm always responsive to the concerns of your constituency. Seemed very gracious. But as we parted now, we marched on Tuesday. We met on Thursday, Monday morning. Inland Revenue Service senior investigators knocked on our door and began a seven-year audit. They went mm. back six years, carried on for seven years. So we actually had 13 years personal and mission finances under a serious audit, very serious audit. We had to employ a full-time accountant just to keep us out of jail and to answer all the questions they were dealing with. And at the end, the Revenue Service determined we owed them nothing, not a cent, after 13 years audit. And uh, wow. praise God that our first chairman of a board was a chartered accountant <laughs> and a Baptist minister. Yes. And he helped yes. keep track. But um, uh, you could see that while he was gracious to our face, and he was very suave and charismatic, but he set his dogs on us. Hmm. 
So how can we pray for and support you in, in, in frontline ministries in your work? Well, we praise God for 40 years of God's grace and mercy and protection and provision. Uh, it's extraordinary that we we operational and and we, from the beginning, did not believe in a lockdown, lunacy, masquerade, madness, salvation by vaccination, COVID cult. We resisted it. We kept going. When other churches closed down, we opened up and we did everything we could so people had places to go. So we, we have uh, uh, stayed functioning. But the fact is many people, millions of people lost their jobs, their incomes, uh, many businesses collapsed. And so our income has dramatically decreased. And the amount of volunteers we have is much less because for the last over two years, we haven't been able to get foreigners coming to our camps and courses through which we often recruited people who would be involved in the work. So we've been starved of volunteers. We've been starved of the con the, the conferences, speaking tours where we'd sell most of our books. And books are a major part of our income ultimately for, for the mission uh, that, that drives everything, puts fuel in our tanks and enables us to distribute and deliver Bibles free across the border. So uh, obviously we need we need more volunteers. We need more support. We need more prayer warriors and, and intercession. So if people want to get to know us, I mean, the first thing is be informed and then be interceding, be involved. Um, uh, if they want to contact me, my email is peter at frontline.org.za, peter at frontline.org.za. And our website, www.frontlinemissionsa.org. So frontlinemissionsa.org is the website. And if uh, people want to get on a mailing list, just email us, ask. We'll gladly keep you updated with what's going on, prayer and praise updates. So on. If you go onto our frontlinemissionsa.org website, you will see uh, prayer and praise updates, articles, news reports, and resources, PowerPoints, sermon audios, videos, and, and a, a range of other things. We, we try to speak for the Persecute Church. And, uh, and mobilize for the Great Commission. So um, that's our biggest needs. If people yeah. are interested in volunteering, we don't just, we're not just offer people volunteering to go into the field. We need administrators. We need IT computer people. We need secretaries. We need librarians. We need researchers. There's uh, our mission headquarters in Cape Town is a, a beehive of activity. Uh, we distribute yeah. over 100 tons of Bibles and books completely free every year. But you know, that takes a lot of administrating, organizing, and distributing. Right. People are coming to us all the time, but, you know, to, to for the camps, courses, outreaches, seminars, workshops, home education, training programs, um, our Literature of Africa ministry, it all needs people involved. And we're very, very short-staffed at the moment. And uh, a lot of things have been undermined. The entire world's been undermined by the stupid COVID cult, as we know, the New World right. Order. Uh, we're operational but we're operating at a fraction of the efficiency that we were before this um, uh, New World Order lockdown took place. And so if people are still willing to travel, um, we could certainly do with uh, some more volunteers down here as well. All right. Thank you very much. This has been really enlightening and and just hearing stories about how the Lord's work is it, always great to hear and thank you for your work uh for your faithfulness there and and i pray the lord continues and and would love to talk again sometime thank you and i'm grateful for this medium because while i've enjoyed speaking to us going all over the place and and across the united states in the past at the moment i don't know if you realize but no foreigner is allowed to visit the united states of america without the fauci ouchie clot shot 
we are required to be vaccinated to travel to America. And that's still in place. Now, you as an American can travel here and back without that. But no foreigner is allowed to enter America, people like me, without that shot. And I'd, I'd rather chew glass and crawl across a minefield by being bombed by the Arabs and take any mandated vaccination from the New World Order and the World Health Organization, or the Wuhan Health Organization, I should say. So uh, um, I understand why at the moment I'm not able to travel uh, to Europe and America, which I used to do a lot, like a couple of times a year sometimes. Um, mm. And so this kind of medium is wonderful that we can uh, communicate without the yes. Wuhan Health Organization interfering in our health and trying to change our DNA. Well, thank you again. I, I appreciate it. <laughs>